This is Tom Wilmoth with The Vinyl Approach. Hey, let's talk about Woodstock. Why not? It's August again, and the festival itself was held in August. 1969 was the year, several lifetimes ago. I recently asked a music-savvy colleague of mine in her mid-40s if Woodstock was at all important to her. She laughed and said, not at all. She thought for a second and asked, a bunch of people sitting around in the mud, right? Well, yes, but there was more to it. Or so I have told myself for this past half century. There have been some touchstones that have shaped me musically. Unsurprisingly, seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan tops the list. Others include Bill Drake's lengthy radio special, The History of Rock and Roll, and Woodstock. I was in ninth grade when the festival took place in August of 69. When the movie came out the following March, my parents wouldn't let me see it. Articles had appeared in the Des Moines Register decrying the content as scandalous. In ninth grade, sneaking out to a movie theater was difficult. No car. But when the soundtrack album came out in May, I had no problem smuggling the record into the house. I had done this many times. The Woodstock soundtrack was a triple album that changed my life. I embraced the music as well as the attitude found on the record's six sides. I got to know the music on that album very well and the between-song stage announcements. I accepted it all. Like many others of my generation, Woodstock made me aware of performers I had never heard before. Santana and Joe Cocker lead that list. There were others who already had followings, but I didn't know them, such as Richie Havens. Then there were the groups I already knew from Top 40 Radio. The Who, for one. Sly and the Family Stone was another. But they weren't playing polished hit singles. These were exciting, raw concert recordings. There was another major selling point for the Woodstock album, three songs by Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Young. At that moment, they were the epitome of everything cool, politically right on, and radical. Their hipness has faded, as all hipness must, but the music holds up. Even today, the live Woodstock version of Wooden Ships is one of the hottest things Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young ever recorded. At the time, I found it odd that the record gave nearly a full side to Sly and the Family Stone, although I liked it. And as odd as the Butterfield Blues Band's lengthy Love March is, this song may be the most representative piece of hippiedom on the entire lengthy record. I studied the album, and I knew it well by the time the movie made its way to drive-ins and second-run houses. It was there I was able to see it. And I did. Many times. It's worth noting that seeing live performances by rock stars was not a common thing in 1969. There was some music on television. Ed Sullivan booked worthwhile bands a few times each season, and there were occasional appearances on variety shows, but not a lot. And many of these network shows had the singers lip-sync their performance to a pre-recorded track, not really live at all. Johnny Cash helped with his weekly show, but live music on TV was still pretty scarce. It was a different era. You could not access the internet and watch concert footage of any act you wanted. Even in 1979, when ABC TV aired its Heroes of Rock and Roll special, being able to see performances by our music heroes was not a common thing. So Woodstock in 1970 was an important movie. To be able to actually watch The Who perform, for example, was remarkable. The Woodstock Festival booked some really big names. But some major acts that seemed like they should have been at the festival were not there. We wondered why. The more we studied the details of Woodstock, and we did study them, some omissions seemed curious. So what bands didn't play Woodstock who should have? The list is long and subjective, but let's hit a few obvious ones. 
The Doors are said to have turned down the festival's invitation because the band, and especially Jim Morrison, didn't like outdoor gigs. They also thought, as many acts did, that Woodstock would be just a warmed-over version of 1967's Monterey Pop Festival. Oliver Stone's biopic places the blame for the Doors not being at Woodstock on the outrage over their Florida concert from March of 69, suggesting that the Doors were not even invited to play Woodstock, but this appears to be wrong. And, by the way, many of these reasons are based on performers' memories, often given decades after the event. For example, with the Doors, they must not have hated outdoor shows that much since they played the 1970 Isle of Wight Festival a year later. Two other notable Woodstock emissions include the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan. I think the Stones were simply too big. Also, Mick Jagger was filming a movie in Australia at the time. In November of 1969, the Stones began their first U.S. tour in three years. I'm guessing the Stones had their own agenda, and Woodstock didn't fit into it. This 69 tour for the Stones culminated in their own free music festival, originally viewed as an answer to Woodstock. It was held in Altamont, California, and is sometimes referred to as Rock's Darkest Day. But that's a topic for another time. Bob Dylan lived in the Woodstock, New York area, but he had disdain for the event, which he later called the sum total of all this hippie bullshit. I think he was tired of telling people to get off his lawn. Oddly enough, Dylan did agree to play the 1969 Isle of Wight Festival, held just weeks after Woodstock. There are others on the Why Not list, but those are three obvious ones. It could be noted that there were no jazz acts and no country music performers present. What this festival could have done for a 1969 Willie Nelson set is incalculable. The same could be said for others, including established stars like Johnny Cash, or in the world of jazz, Miles Davis. How about a 1969 set by James Brown, or Aretha? And yes, Bruce Springsteen was playing by this point in a group called Child, but this bar band was probably not quite ready for a Woodstock type of gig. Others were hoping to play the festival, but didn't. A partial list would include the Chicago Transit Authority. In August 1969, Chicago hadn't yet hit the top 40, but their first album had come out in April. They wanted to play Woodstock and were invited, but Bill Graham wouldn't let them out of a Fillmore West date on that same weekend. It's said that this was Graham's way of intentionally keeping Chicago from making a splash at the festival. He didn't want competition from this new horn band with a hot guitar and good songs. Graham had his own priorities for the festival, which included turning Santana into stars, who he managed, and which he did. Bill Graham also managed other bands, like the Jefferson Airplane, but as established stars, the airplane didn't need the important promotional push that the unknown Santana received in the movie and on the album. Had Chicago played Woodstock, would that exposure have broken the band more quickly? Tough to say but Chicago would begin its fast ascent soon enough when Make Me Smile became a hit single in the spring of 1970. The already popular horn band Blood, Sweat, and Tears played Woodstock, but had little impact, appearing in neither the film nor the album. One could argue that they had already peaked and were now in their loungy David Clayton Thomas era. Had the original Al Cooper version of Blood, Sweat, and Tears played Woodstock, that could have been a very different story. But Cooper and his vision for BS&T were long gone by the fall of 1969. In spite of what people say about the trailblazing horn sections of both Chicago and Blood, Sweat, and Tears, these instruments were not unique to pop and rock music at this time, even in some of the bands who played Woodstock. Sly and the Family Stone had horns, so did the Butterfield Blues Band. 
Butterfield had a five-piece horn section which included future jazz star David Sanborn on alto saxophone. In the 1980s, Sanborn would sit in with Paul Schaefer's house band on Late Night with David Letterman. This became a regular Friday night guest spot for Sanborn. For one of the Woodstock anniversaries, it might have been the 20th, Letterman was talking about the festival. For some reason, he called over to the band and said, You wish you'd been at Woodstock, right, David? To which Sanborn calmly replied, I played Woodstock. A stunned Letterman asked if that were true. Sanborn said, I was with the great Paul Butterfield. I remember wishing that Letterman had abandoned whatever guest was scheduled next and invited David Sanborn over to the desk to talk about it, but that didn't happen. The point is, Paul Butterfield had a horn section at Woodstock, as did Sly Stone and the Keith Hartley Band. So BS&T in Chicago were not unique in having horns in their lineup, but each band did have big hits. Unique or not, I wish we had professionally shot concert footage of Chicago in 1969. I bet they do too. The Butterfield Blues Band is on the Woodstock record, but do not appear in the movie. And when I talk about the movie, I am talking about the version that was shown in theaters beginning in the spring of 1970. I'll talk about the expanded director's cut of the film later in this episode of The Vinyl Approach. Which acts that actually played at Woodstock might have benefited most from some screen time or inclusion in the album? Johnny Winter was there, but the film of his Mean Town Blues is quite dark, and Winter's lengthy solo is introspective. If the Woodstock movie's producers had to choose a guitar phenom for the film, ten years after Alvin Lee won that contest, I'm Going Home is simply a more exciting performance. Would Johnny Winter's inclusion have helped his career? Undoubtedly, but he did okay for himself. Some others left out of the movie did not. The group Sweetwater, for one. Burt Summer is another. Janis Joplin's career was at its zenith in 1969, and a song from her would have been a welcome addition to the film. We had always heard that none of Janis's set was included because she was incapacitated, but this was not true, as released concert footage later proved, as does the complete audio recording of her set. It turns out that legal issues and manager demands prevented Joplin from appearing in the movie, an ugly topic we will leave for another day. Janis Joplin is seen in the movie during one brief shot of offstage activity. She appears lucid and resplendent in her colorful outfit. Some performers who didn't make it into the film or album were just unlucky. The Incredible String Band didn't want to expose their fragile acoustic instruments to the Friday Night Rainstorm, so they switched their time from the evening of folk music to Saturday's Rock Day. Their postponed set never really gelled. Similarly, the band played, but Robbie Robertson later said that they were not especially happy with their set, and they felt like choir boys, surrounded by heavy rock groups. The now-forgotten band Quill played a strong set, but the film of their performance was spoiled by technical problems. Bad breaks. Other bands got lucky. Sha Na Na was the penultimate act of the festival. It said that their set was recorded mainly as a final test of the technicians' failing equipment, to make sure everything was working before Hendrix played. Sean Anna would appear in both the movie and on the album. John Sebastian was not scheduled to play at all, but being backstage, he was asked to fill time after Santana's set while equipment was being switched out, which he memorably did. Melanie, too, was not on the bill, but filled in for the rain-shy, incredible string band and made a career out of her performance. When the Woodstock movie opened in the spring of 1970, it changed many careers, most for the better, as it brought increased record sales and concert bookings. 
But guitarist Alvin Lee of 10 years after voiced frustrations about the expectations of audiences following Woodstock. Lee considered 10 years after to be a blues band. The fiery version of I'm Going Home used in the film was their closer, but Lee said it was not indicative of their set. I had a friend in New York who saw the group several times before the Woodstock Festival and confirmed this. They were mainly a blues band. Alvin Lee grew weary of being asked to constantly play in the style of I'm Going Home. When 10 years after broke up in 1974, Lee went on the road under his own name. In an interview with Rolling Stone to promote the tour, he concluded by saying, there sure as hell won't be any I'm Going Home played at these shows. That's his prerogative, of course, but I wonder how many ticket sales he quashed with that single sentence. Feelings must have remained raw with Alvin Lee, for when Rhino assembled their 40-year anniversary box set Back to Yasgur's Farm, 10 years after was one of only three groups not included. Lee refused. The other two groups that chose not to appear on that CD box set were the band, who had always been picky about where their music was used, and the Keith Hartley band, who it was said wouldn't allow their set to even be recorded at the festival. That turned out not to be true. Another Woodstock rumor. That one was put to rest when the 50th anniversary box set came out, called Back to the Garden, which contains music from every act, including Keith Hartley, plus the band, and ten years after. Alvin Lee died in 2013, so it probably no longer mattered to him if his music career was defined by a single tune. There are many stories about bands who didn't play Woodstock, and some that almost played Woodstock. Too many to recount today, but here are a couple that I find interesting. Jeff Beck's group was scheduled to play, but the guitarist purposefully broke up his band because he didn't want it to be preserved on film. Seems odd, sort of a Neil Young attitude. If this is true, his mindset helps explain why Jeff Beck has never had the type of career enjoyed by his two Yardbird guitar colleagues, Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page. Whatever the reason, it's too bad since it would be great to have live recordings of Jeff Beck from 1969. Speaking of Yardbird guitarists, just where was Eric Clapton during Woodstock? He was in California playing gigs with his new band, Blind Faith. It'd be nice to have some footage of that short-lived collective. Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin is another frustrating account. Zeppelin was on tour in the U.S. during the summer of 1969, even playing dates as close as New Jersey the weekend Woodstock was held. Manager Peter Grant is said to have kept his band from performing at Woodstock, where he felt they would be seen as just another group. So they didn't play. But this story doesn't quite ring true when Led Zeppelin's itinerary is examined. 1969 saw this new band play at least nine other U.S. festivals that summer. It's said that the Beatles actually considered playing Woodstock, but I doubt this. They had not played a concert in three years, and nobody knew that this Woodstock festival would take on such an iconic cultural stature. John Lennon supposedly turned down the offer for the Beatles to play because the organizers refused to book the Plastic Ono Band featuring Yoko. Again, I doubt this. Sounds to me like the reason why John chose not to participate at Bangladesh. In mid-August 1969, the Beatles were deep into completing the Abbey Road album. For them to abruptly turn away from this task and work up a live set for one concert appearance seems unlikely. Also, there was the question of whether John could even enter the United States at this time. But I have heard that the Beatles were asked to play Woodstock just as they had been asked to perform at Monterey Pop two years earlier. They played neither. Someone who apparently wasn't asked to play Woodstock, who could have performed there, was Elvis Presley. Don't laugh. It's not an impossibility. 
After the success of the Singer Presents Elvis television special in December 1968, Elvis returned to live performances. On the last day of July 1969, he began a series of high-profile concerts in Las Vegas. It might have been too much to ask the King to face an audience of 400,000 people only two weeks after his concert career reboot, but it was possible. Elvis was performing live again when Woodstock took place. It's made me wonder... How would the Woodstock audience have reacted to Elvis Presley? Respect or reverence? Or ridicule? Would he have been dismissed as an oldies act? His set lists from 1969 were heavy on his biggest RCA hits like Don't Be Cruel and Heartbreak Hotel, with a smattering of recent cover songs such as Hey Jude and Memories. He also had his own recent hits to sing, including In the Ghetto and Suspicious Minds, both from 1969. But would these radio hits have resonated with the Woodstock crowd? Did this audience listen to AM radio anymore? And what about the King's triumphant comeback special just nine months earlier? Would that have mattered to this audience? I can't say. I was 14 years old in 1969, and I knew of nobody who was into Elvis. In fact, when I bought a copy of the album Elvis's Golden Records in 1973, I was the only person I knew who owned an Elvis Presley album. Not long ago, a friend of mine tersely summed it up by saying, Elvis in the 70s? Not cool. The Woodstock audience would have been a little older than I had been in 1969, but were they old enough to make a difference in their attitude towards Elvis Presley? Impossible to know. But if there had been the slightest chance of Elvis being booed, or worse, laughed at, it's probably good that he didn't play Woodstock. Not that his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, would have allowed it anyway. Why not? To start, neither Elvis nor the Colonel liked the unpredictable nature of outdoor concerts. Then there's the billing in the movie. If Parker would have allowed them to film the performance and use it, the Colonel would have insisted on Elvis receiving top billing, turning Woodstock into an Elvis concert movie that happened to include other acts. And what about the Woodstock audience? Elvis didn't understand or like hippies, and the youth culture of the 1960s had never embraced Elvis. Hippies and Elvis were mutually dismissive, or at least wary of one another. Might have been a tough crowd for Elvis to win over. Finally, the money. Could the Woodstock organizers have offered enough to book the king? At $18,000, Jimi Hendrix was the festival's highest paid performer. For his 1969 Las Vegas engagement, Elvis was making $20,000 a night for two shows. So, it seems that the Woodstock promoters could have afforded Elvis. This all becomes moot unless Colonel Parker would have okayed the date. And would the colonel have considered letting Elvis play Woodstock? If the money was right, I think yes. Would Elvis have wanted to do it? By this point, what Elvis wanted was usually immaterial. I think if the colonel had said, do the show, Elvis would have done it. But to what end? Would it result in a huge renewed audience and a further revitalization that began with the comeback special? Or would it be humiliation on an unparalleled scale? But this is all conjecture and pipe dream on my part. I doubt if Elvis's name ever appeared on any shortlist for festival invitations. The people booking acts for Woodstock didn't dip into any performers from an earlier generation of rock and roll. No Chuck Berry or Jerry Lee Lewis. The closest the organizers came to presenting early rock and roll was with a group that recreated 1950s doo-wop, Sha Na Na. They perform the old Danny and the Juniors hit at the hop, and they do it well. The performance is used on the album and in the movie. But after the song finishes, and as side one of the album fades out, if you listen closely, you can hear some members of the audience booing. Were these people booing the idea of old-time rock and roll? Or were they booing because they had been waiting all night for the festival closer, Jimi Hendrix, to finally take the stage? 
no idea. But the question remains, how would Elvis Presley have gone over at Woodstock? Finally today, since 1994, the original three-hour theatrical version of the Woodstock movie has been replaced by the director's cut. It's about 40 minutes longer than the original film. Here's why I find the director's cut problematic. Mainly, it just gets too long, and the film's original pace is impeded. Or maybe it's because I know the original cut of the movie so well that I find any alteration a disruption. Whatever the reason, I don't see the director's cut as a superior viewing experience. For one thing, what's added is not all that compelling. With legal issues resolved, Janis Joplin footage of Work Me Lord is welcome, as is the Jefferson Airplanes medley Saturday Afternoon, Won't You Try. But the second new song by the airplane drags, and the added canned heat number is totally superfluous. That an audience member joins the group on stage may speak to the oneness of the Woodstock community, and true, this is the classic canned heat lineup with Bob Height and Alan Wilson, but the performance does not warrant inclusion. Or so say I. These additional 40 minutes would be better used as bonus material on DVDs of the original movie. But what I find even more interesting than the director's cut itself is how thoroughly the original movie theater version has been buried. It has never been issued on DVD or Blu-ray. The only tangible place to find the original film version of Woodstock is on VHS tape, which I own, and on Laserdisc, which I don't. Neither is now commercially available. This is an Academy Award-winning documentary. Leave it alone. It doesn't need re-editing. I began today by speaking of the importance that Woodstock had and still has for me. For a long time, I wished I could have been there. Even now, that sounds appealing, but in small doses. I would want to get away from it when I felt like it. An exit strategy. I remember reading one report from a person who attended, saying that the movie got it right, but wasn't able to show how boring a lot of it was, just waiting around for the next band to play. The few people I know who attended Woodstock had similar reactions. They also talked about how far from the stage they were. And remember, this was in the days before the huge Diamond Vision screens. You were either close enough to see the artists on stage, or you weren't. Most weren't. Once I became a bit more music savvy, and maybe that means music cynical, I remember thinking about the construction of the movie. Well, of course it's good. Not only did they eliminate the boring stuff, they only used the best music. The producers took the hot encore tune from each band and edited them together. Not always, but often. And yet the Woodstock movie and album communicates more than music, or it does to me. I was turned on to a lot of new bands, sure, but the whole attitude of the album was fresh. Listening to it was a joyous, upbeat experience, just as the movie was and is. Both radiate hope and accentuates that which is positive in ourselves. I'm not ashamed to admit that I am glad that Woodstock and all that it entails has remained a touchstone for me for more than 50 years. This has been The Vinyl Approach. I'm Tom Wilmeth, and if you are interested in reading more of my opinions about music, I have published a book called Sound Bites, A Lifetime of Listening. Sound Bites is available on Amazon. This has been The Vinyl Approach, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.